What's up, everybody? Welcome to another boardroom out of office. Today we're in the office and we're here with a very special guest and a very close friend, the global editorial director of GQ and the editor in chief of GQ US. Please welcome to the show, Mr. Will Welch. I'm very impressed you got both titles in there. Thank you. I know. Once yeah. I hear something once, yeah. I don't forget. Dinner's it. on me. Thank you, brother. I, I do a few of these where I talk to someone who's like legitimately my friend. And then I find myself sometimes saying, please welcome my friend to the show. And, in, and I'm in my head like, I just met this dude. <laughs> Stop lying to the people. But you and I really go back. Yeah, way back, way back. So if you had asked me when we used to hang out yeah. um, 20 years ago, do you think I'll be the global editorial director of GQ? Do you know what I probably would have said? What? Yeah, I could see that. <laughs> Seriously, Sweet. I think I would have saw that because... One thing about you, in my opinion, was you always separated yourself a bit with your style, your taste, Thank certain you. level of sophistication. And you meet a few of these people in New York, especially that have just like a real gauge of, for lack of a better word, the culture. Um, and at that time, you were working at Fader. That's right. Yeah. And Fader to all of us was as relevant and important in the culture as anything else around at that point. Right. Yeah, I think at the time, what was special about the Fader, because the Fader magazine, music magazine, is you had um, Spin, Blender, Rolling Stone, rock and roll magazines, and then you had XXL, Vibe, The Source, hip-hop magazines. But who did you know in the early 2000s that was either just listening to rock and roll or just listening to hip-hop? So Fader was the, the first place, you know, to the credit of Rob Stone and John Cohen, the founders, where we were putting all of that music together, which is how everybody was listening to yeah. music. You know, It was like the open format DJ yeah. that was mashing all genres of music. Yeah, you, like that was, you were working with Mark every day at that time, yeah. right? Mark Ronson, who was one of the people doing that. And we used, me and the Fader crew, we used to go down to Philly to see Diplo uh holotronics parties at the time where he was putting like you know new wave and crunk music together and we were losing our fucking minds you know what i was thinking about the other day it's really interesting about that time i'm thinking about like these parties i think it was in a ukrainian social club the um holotronics parties nobody wearing what we now think of as fashion at the time like the idea of going to a party and having a 20 year old kid like wearing gucci which is now like de rigueur Very common. at the time that was like completely unusual. Yes. So I'm sure we'll talk about like sports and fashion as well. And that's been a huge part of that wave. But I was just thinking about like the culture at that time, people that were into fashion were like doing something else. Totally. And that people th that were into music, I mean, people were into style it, in the music scene, but not like, not like high fashion brands. Yeah. From hip hop Milan, culture a bit, right? Like yeah. you had a lot of the female rappers, um, and a lot of rappers in general that would rap about it, but that yeah. like mixed genre, that world, the fader world, no, it was like yeah, t-shirt, jeans, yeah. and dirty sneakers. And, yeah, exactly. Nike, I remember Mark sure. used to tell me my sneakers were too clean. <laughs> He's like, what are you doing? Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, you guys had a good uh, yin and yang with that. We did. Yeah. Do you think that that time like is representative in your style of leading now and what you've brought to your role at GQ? Definitely. So the thing like the fader, the parties were as important as the magazine. Yeah, that's still the way I think about GQ. And the reason that the parties were good and the reason the, the parties were as important as the magazine is because it was like a community project. Like the fader was just like really a bunch of like 
knuckleheads and alcoholics, like making this thing together. Um, and we tried to do the same thing at GQ without the alcoholism. Um, <laughs> but no, it's a commute like GQ is a platform, like a magazine, the modern iteration of the magazine with all the digital extensions and everything is the most collaborative medium that I can think of in any genre. Yep. Like we, my, me and my staff can't put out a, a magazine on our own. Mm -hmm. We need photographers, stylists, freelance writers, like all, you know, all these different crews of people. And so the way that me and the team think about it is GQ is just a platform and we invite people in our community to stand on it with us. And we create a compelling culture that the audience wants to stand with you as well. Yeah. And they do that by following and subscribing and watching our videos and all that stuff. So it's a community project. And so you say your people, right? So, um, and, and your role, tell me, and I remember we went to dinner over the summer and it was basically this interview. I like grilled you for an hour at dinner about everything GQ. Um, but so for our, our viewers, tell me exactly what global editorial director of GQ means. Did I get it right that time? Yeah, oh, still got it. All right, good. Yeah. Um, so there are 20 editions of GQ around the world. So yep. GQ US, GQ UK, GQ Taiwan, GQ India, GQ Spain. Um, and prior to 2021, they there was no real conversation or collaboration between any of us. So everybody was just sort of like making, you know, their own idea of what the menswear Bible should be and what a culture magazine should be like through the perspective of men's fashion. But there was no coordination of that whatsoever. And so to be honest, what you had was like, you know, different editions kind of like wandering off like stray cats. And so in 2021, I was tasked and was super excited to sort of like make sense of all that and to build all of these already existent editions of GQ around the world into a real network. And so now myself and the teams around the world, my, t my team here in New York, we all work together all day, every day. We're on global Zooms every Monday and Tuesday morning. Um, it's one big collaboration with all these different outlets. And so historically GQ had the logo on a publication around the world, but in terms of the content and the look and feel and the aesthetic, they had the freedom to kind of create what each one of them were? Yeah, each edition was totally autonomous, which sounds good, but what it really was was like kind of a mess. Yeah. So I w went to, to build our network, I was kind of looking at what the global fashion houses do, where there's one creative director, there's a runway show, there's a global campaign, and then there are also all these local campaigns because they need to make sure they're not only sending a clear message to the whole world about what Gucci or Louis Vuitton or whatever stands for in this moment. Uh, but then they also need to be like activating locally to get people yeah. to the stores in, in Sao Paulo and, yep. and, and China, et cetera. So I looked at how they were structured and thought there was something really similar that we could do. Um, so sometimes we share if, if like, uh, one of our most viral covers this year was Robert Pattinson. Mm -hmm. He was, uh, he had Batman at the time. So global celebrity, huge global film. So we all simultaneously published the same, it was two covers. It was like him, Robert Pattinson, and then this like transformed punk rock Patton Pattinson. <laughs> we published that simultaneously around the world. Um, other issues, some, countries will publish the same cover and some will be like, that's not going to work for, yeah. for my audience. So we're going to do this other local thing. What territories are most kind of in line or help drive the global GQ brand? 
I mean, we try to do it collaboratively for everyone. And we've also been able to, to do these big, like we did this project called Voices of the Future, where every, all 20 um, editions nominated an emerging musician from their home country who they thought was going to be like one of the most important voices of the future. And we just did this huge portfolio and um, like created a Spotify playlist where you could hear everything. So it's like a look at emerging music from all over the world. But is like Japan or a different territory considered like very GQ and one of the drivers of the brand the way the U.S. is? Yeah. So um, the biggest markets are U.S., uh, China, and the U.K. And then obviously there's a lot of strength in France and Italy, where which are big fashion capitals. Um, and then we have some of global editions like GQ India, for instance. There isn't, you know like our men of the year we're doing, this is the 27th men of the year for the U S GQ India is, uh, I can't remember exactly like less, I think maybe like 10 years old. So they're still like educating the Indian people who are interested in what GQ is. Mm -hmm. Whereas here, if you like stop somebody, I mean, thank God, if you stop somebody on the street, say what's GQ, they're like, yeah, men's fashion. That's the thing I admire so much about the brand and why you're so perfect to lead it. Cause the brand represents those same qualities I was talking about, a level of sophistication and taste and credibility. Um, there's not as many of them left in media. How do you find yourself juggling the idea of media changing so much? Yeah the magazine meaning less than it used to, um, having to utilize so many different means of distribution, but still having to maintain that level of credibility and sophistication that is GQ. Yeah, I mean, first of all, I'm just lucky and grateful every day for like, for real, I think about this every day that people just care about GQ, like it means something to people. So I was able to like inherit this incredible, like you could call it brand equity from a business perspective, but really it's just like passion. It's like GQ stands for something always has, people still care about it. So in a media landscape that's been completely disrupted, um, it matters to people. And GQ being right is, people come up to me all the time and they're like, it, you can tell they really care that like GQ is right. Like if it's not right, it like offends them and they think like the universe is, yeah. is out of alignment. Like not GQ too. Yeah. Yeah. Like, <laughs> come on. This is like something has to hold the line. So that is just like a power of its own. And I, I really try to honor that. But then I also think this is a completely disrupted business, like an insane media landscape. And that to me has offered like an incredibly long leash to the point of like, I think we've kind of shaken off the leash and we just do whatever the fuck we want. Can I cuss? Yeah. We do whatever the fuck we want. Like Please, there's, cuss. there's total creative freedom. Um, and so we really try to push it. So our version of GQ in this era is just like not safe at all because why would you play it safe when you're like one of the last magazines yeah. on, if the last magazine is like predictable, you know, soon there's going to be no magazines. But don't you worry about the person that comes up in the street that says, thank you for being right. I mean, the leash is off, but you have to still maintain that but, connection to what the brand means. Yeah. But part of what, so what GQ stands for, there are other brands, like whether it's media or otherwise that stand for classicism. What GQ stands for is being leaned into the future. It has always been for people that want to know what's next, want our help seeing around corners, anticipating culture. And so the GQ reader and the kind of person that would stop me in the street is the kind of person that like wants to be fucked with. They yeah. want to be surprised. And we try to like really play games, whether it's from the way we dress people to who's on the cover to the stories that we tell where 
um, we're doing something surprising that doesn't feel like it would belong in GQ, but making it work and then do doing something like it's like a pitcher, you know, it's yeah. like curveball, curveball, curveball. They don't see the fastball coming right down yep. the middle. Um, and I think like our Christian Bale cover, we've been doing a lot of like wild shit this year. And then we just like the November issue is like a classic black and white photo of Christian Bale looking like super manly. Yeah. The it, October was AOC, yep. which everyone was like, the whole point was to surprise people with a, you know, female politician on the cover of GQ, but she was talking about abortion and misogyny. Yep. So like dealing with men's issues. So there were surprise there. And I was like, so excited. That was the curveball, And then we, yes. like, we brought the black and white Christian Bale looking handsome and like a famous Hollywood actor. As someone who like is a bit of a free thinker and an entrepreneur while running a, a you know, a publication within a bigger corporate infrastructure, yep. how much, a balancing of that do you have to do of saying all right i'm going to throw aoc on the cover i'm yeah. going to shake shit up yeah. um but have to get buy-in or do you have that same type of long leash you think at this point creatively with gq no i have the complete trust of the company um total creative freedom like everybody else on earth like literally everybody else on earth i have a boss her name is anal and tour but she is incredibly supportive yeah so um you know, I contextualize the decisions I'm making for her. Um, I value her input as anybody with a brain would. Um, but ultimately, the decisions are are owned by me and my team. You stand on it. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, I actually taught Roger Lynch how to play pickleball this summer. I heard about that. Yeah. yeah. He was good. Yeah. Well, you know, you kept saying that we were going to play pickleball and then you didn't. And then you taught the CEO of my company how to play. <laughs> and I was feeling a little like stepped on by that. But, I don't blame you, bro. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm just like slightly in my feelings about that, not heavily <laughs> in my feelings. Um, as you go into like these flagship parts of what GQ is, right? Like a GQ man of the year. Yeah. That is something that's existed, you said, for 27 years um, in America. How has it like, how does it represent GQ globally now? Like how does this, as I see you're taking it to six different continents and... Yeah. How does this represent what GQ is? Is this supposed to really be one of those flagship parts of what the brand is? It is, yeah. Um, and what, uh, like, a big part of the responsibility I felt. So I became editor in chief of GQ US at the very end of 2018, but just call it 2019. So we're in the thick of the Me Too movement, right? Yeah. So everybody, like, the culture is demanding that men like grow a sense of responsibility, accountability, and that men evolve. And then it's like, <laughs> congratulations, you're the editor in chief of a like 50 year old men's media brand. Like, yeah. what are you gonna do with it? So you can either think about that moment as like um, uh, a problem, or you can think of it as an opportunity. For me and for my whole team, we thought of it as an opportunity. So the culture is demanding that men change. We, if anybody, is an expert and like what's going on with men, it's us. So we uh, did this, the November issue in 2019 was the new masculinity issue. And it was just an exploration of how notions of being a man, masculinity are evolving at a time where like it had to happen. Mm -hmm. Like um, uh, self-analysis, accountability, 
Um, these things were like long overdue and we were like, well, we can either, um, worry about what this means for our position or we can fucking lead, Yeah, you know, like take your pick. Like to me, that that's a very obvious decision. And so when we're trying to, when we see opportunities like that, we put all of the, the full arsenal into it. So it was like the new masculinity issue with extensions across all of our platforms. And that is something that we're still doing. It's a conversation that we started in 2019 that we continue today. So like one example I can give is like it, when, even though this issue isn't the new masculinity issue part like 24 or whatever it would be at this point, like if we're talking to a celebrity, we're creating a space in the interview where they can talk about um, those themes. So when we interview Brad Pitt, it's not like the new masculinity interview with Brad Pitt. It's yeah. just a, it's a profile of Brad Pitt, but he, because we like have started that conversation and are continuing it and we create that space, he talks about like what it was like growing up in the Ozarks, yep. what the expectations of men were, the age at which he actually began to process that and what that meant for him, you know? And so we're able to continue having that conversation. And I think that's why, something like the men of the year issue can still be relevant because yeah. people say, Oh, they're not doing like the last thing men need to do is like give each other awards. Right. <laughs> like <laughs> nobody wants to hear that. So, but when you're doing it in a way that like is taking all this context in and making that a part of the conversation and doing it with like values and a sense of right and wrong, then suddenly it's still relevant. Yeah. I, I want to get obviously back to the man of the year and, and the three magazines in front of us, but, touching on the masculinity issue that you did, the new masculinity was a few things. Was it something that you, f that you almost got as like a marching order or was it a responsibility that you just knew and why you are yeah. who you are when you took the job? Or was it something that as soon as you took the job, you felt from your staff that were looking at you? It, uh, you, you, you gave three options. It was the last two. It was, I felt, when the, when the opportunity to, I'd been at GQ for 12 years at that point, 11 or 12 years at that point, when the opportunity came to be editor in chief in that environment, I knew that we had an opportunity to like take, take, tackle this head on. Yeah. And I, within like the first three days of being editor in chief, I brought that up with the staff and we began that conversation and they obviously had strong opinions, expectations, et cetera. And I remember we were originally going to do it for the, I really was pushing to do it for the April issue of my first year as editor. And we ended up doing it in November because it took us a second to do it right. With Pharrell, right? Yeah. With Pharrell and with the Montclair puffer. Yeah. Yep. yeah the Montclair gown. Um, <laughs> shout out to Pharrell. You know, I called Pharrell and he was like, I am the new masculinity. Let's yeah. do it. Like not scared at all. Like one just wanted to be a part of it. Is that a, your idea? Uh, or the team's idea. Yeah. All of us. Yeah. Cause it's an obvious one. It was like, he is. Yeah, no, totally. And, and ageless. Right. Yeah, completely. <laughs> and fearless when it comes to fashion yeah. and, and he's an icon for like the, he's an icon for the GQ community that I was, had set out to develop. Yeah. So you need somebody with that kind of, uh, gravitas to hold down something that if it was just some like 21 year old handsome actor, people would be like, I don't, I don't know yeah. what this is and I don't care. But when it's GQ and Pharrell saying masculinity is changing, like I think well, people listened. It was it was almost like uh, ingredients from a fader cover, mm. you know, in some way in terms of, did you not like that one? No, I'm with it. All right. Can you 
Can you say more? Well, yeah, I could, I could give you a bit more. I mean, it felt like the the new masculinity was this like shift in a cover where you could put Pharrell in this like down to the floor yeah. Montclair jacket. Yeah. And that risk was like fader like in some ways. Right. And Pharrell, in my opinion, was like a almost like a product of that era as well. Yeah. And I, I think the there's a really early fader cover of Pharrell and Chad, a Neptune's cover. Yeah. That, so he was part of that like crew and community from the beginning and has always been like super supportive, just like one of my favorite collaborators, you know, like we go back to Pharrell and he's excited to work with us and he pushes me and I push him, you know, to do something new. And, um, yeah, I think that shoot is a good example of it. I can, I am down with, um, some faderness to the new masculinity issue. Yeah. Let's do it. Yeah. The selection process of the man of the year. Um, talk to me a little bit about that because I would imagine that that has got to be both a fun process internally, right? Every yeah. time you tackle it and then also pretty overwhelming. Yeah. It's um, yeah, it's both of those things. So it really just is like who had a real impact this year that again is like um, represents our vision of, of GQ now. So this year for 2022, it's Max Verstappen. So um, sports, long been a huge part of what GQ is about. Like one of my favorite GQ photos, because obviously when you take on a job like this, you go back to the archive and, and, and look at everything. But there's a Richard Avedon photo of Michael Jordan. I think it's 1986. I know exactly. That is like, it's one of the best pictures GQ's ever published. So sports has always been a huge part of what we do. Um, I'm really excited about the rise of F1 in the U.S. Yeah. It's all it's long been relevant in in Europe and in Asia and so on, um, but we've really been getting behind like the 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 rise in in interest in F1 here. And Max does very little media. He's very hard to get. He doesn't talk much. Um, and it's because we were able to offer him, you know, a cover that would be seen all around the world as with this new global network um, that we, we were able to work with him. So you always want a champion on there. Um, Zoe Kravitz, I think it's like just very modern to us to have a woman in the mix. Yeah. Um, and then Brendan Fraser, who has... Um, I think he's, I'm not like a golden derby type guy. I don't really like care that much about the Oscars, but I think he's going to run away with best actor for um, this like huge comeback role in this Darren Aronofsky film called the whale. So is, was that cover, is that a bit of a, not risk, but is that a foreshadowing by the publication in some ways? Um, well, it's definitely thinking it like we're we're kind of betting on that film and his performance in it for sure. But there's also an interesting backstory there. So we published um, a story in 2018, whatever happened to Brendan Fraser. Um, and it's one of the biggest stories in GQ history. And it actually really? like really changed Brendan Fraser's career and his life. And so there's like all this backstory that we're kind of returning to with this cover now that he has this big role. That was pre you. Well, you were uh, there. I was there, but I wasn't the editor. You can't yeah. say you changed Brendan Fraser's I life. I cannot. No, I wouldn't. And the <laughs> the Zoe Kravitz decision, I agree with you that it's, it is modern, right? Yeah. And it is obviously a bit of a statement and yeah. I think a necessary one. I think yeah. it plays incredibly well and she's as iconic as it gets. Yes. But, and, and she's cool in a way that like just makes sense for us. Yeah. Yeah. I get it. Yeah. Was she 
reticent at all about no, doing it? Stoked. She got it right yeah, away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I think the shoot is really good. A Stephen Stephen Klein shoot. So are these three um the same ones all over the world? No. So the global editions, some of them are running one, two, or three of these, and then all of them are doing their own local covers as well. And then they all have their, we do the big party in LA on Thursday, the 17th, and all the global editions have their own men of the year party as well. So it's like a big globally aligned platform. Will you hit every single? (laughs) No, no, no. There's a, they're they're all like back to back to back. It actually wouldn't physically be possible, but you could do it. Yeah. I'm going. I'm going to. Um, I am going to GQ Japan's Men of the Year. Oh, you are. Yeah. So I'm excited about that. Uh, my Japanese right. is terrible, which is going to be awkward because I'm kind of hosting it. But are you? Yeah. We'll see how it goes. They're not. You want to come? I mean, yeah, I can, but I, <laughs> they're not expecting you to speak in Japanese, are they? No, they're not. There'll be a translator. Translator. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you mentioned sports, and I agree. Obviously, like. Uh, you know, if you had to describe GQ and you started to list the elements that made up like a GQ man, I think sports would be a part of it. But you have always loved the sports world, have yeah. always, um, even when you were in your different roles at GQ, we would speak from time to time. We would talk about Kevin in the past, yeah. and I knew you were always very bullish on those covers that were sports related. But you've taken it to a whole different place and your whole kind of vision for what GQ sports is going to be is pretty exciting i think it's necessary and i think with the saturation of sports media which mm. is a lot yeah you guys have a clear opportunity to stand out because of that like medal of honor that gq carries with it but what is the goal what is the vision um overall and then and again you know as you start to branch out with this you know how much do you have to think about um the gq brand and like how far you can really take gq sports So I think sky's the limit for GQ sports. Like if you think about addressable audience, right? If you think about how many, let's just talk about the US. It gets crazy when you think about 20 global editions, but let's talk about the US. When you think about the number of American men who identify as kind of like people who see the world as like fashion, being into fashion, it's growing. It's grown crazily over the last 15 years since I started at GQ, like, like blows my mind. But still, and then you compare that to the addressable audience for American men who are love sports mm-hmm. and are interested not just in scores and highlights, but the culture of sports and yep. the lifestyle of athletes. So I think the, the magnitude of the opportunity for us is as big as anything I've sort of like launched um, in my time as editor. And the, I mean, to talk a little bit more about what, how I see it, I think that is our opportunities. The culture, we don't do scores and highlights. Everybody else, people have that covered. Um, I think you've been incredibly savvy and smart with boardroom. You have a very clear lane and, and what you're doing. Like it's, I know you, that, uh, you're growing it beyond this, but when I think of boardroom, I think of the business of sports and Mm -hmm. so many of us are interested in that and Mm -hmm. the way that business is culture as well. Um, thank you, by the way, thank you. That's kind of the vibe, right? Yeah, no, thank you. Okay, okay. Yeah, legitimately, yeah. thank you. Um, no, it's <laughs> been it's been really clear from day one, and I'm in the clear messaging business, and thank you've, you, you've nailed it. Um, so for us, you know, the tagline of GQ Sports is the real action is off the field. So it's the culture of sports, lifestyle of athletes, so it, how it intersects with fashion, music, you know, the whole nine. Mm-hmm. Like you can imagine 
um, if you pick any NBA game, right, there's the scores, the box score, the highlights. Why is everybody obsessed with somebody getting crossed up right now? Like, what is it about Instagram and like, like going absolutely nuts because like somebody went for a fake? Well, I mean, I think it's just grown in popularity, but it's always been like the moment. It was a street no, ball thing, but like the, ah, that kind of thing. Yeah. Did you see Point Gods? I'm no. plugging. Yeah, what I, I told you, my friend told me. Yeah. Yeah. There's a whole thing about how like that feeling when someone would start isolating somebody and like yeah. the crowd would stand up and, and it's just now taken form in the NBA. It's because we love when our fellow man gets broken down. Yes. Do you see Kevin break yeah. fellow man down? <laughs> Did the other I? Day? <laughs> that is like the meme of the season it's so incredible, far. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so anyway, I lost my train of thought because we talked about something much more interesting. Crossing people Crossing over. motherfuckers yeah. up. GQ has their own totally. kind of walk in the so, runway. Since the beginning, I actually should have checked what year this was. It was probably like 2014 or 2015 when players Kevin and LeBron, uh, Dwayne Wade and Russell being the first four really like started getting on their fashion shit. We were all over that from the very beginning. Um, And we're just like covering it and covering it and covering it because it's like it's perfect for us. It's the intersection of two of our favorite worlds. And it was, it's also just incredible to see, I talked a little bit earlier about the way fashion has kind of like moved through culture. And that was such a new, clear, new, like uh, watershed moment where like fashion had moved into a new space. And um, so we've just been on it from the beginning. And then, yeah, we're the like, ultimately when it comes to fits, like we're in charge. That's yeah. just the way it is. But then at the end of the day too, it's about, I think what GQ offers and what GQ sports offers is athletes just want to talk to GQ. They want to be interviewed by us. They want to be photographed by us. And so there's just incredible opportunity for us to, to do a lot more in a way. I think the sports and athletes and sports fans have wanted more from GQ than we've been giving. So we're really just like meeting the demand where they are. And it's a big point of investment and we've got really big plans for, um, February of next year, a bunch of stuff around the Super Bowl. You know, February is like, it's Super Bowl. It's All Star. It's like it's so much. Yeah, so, um, that's going to be like kind of a new, a new launch moment for GQ Sports. For GQ Sports, yeah, very cool. Um, and we are like investing in it heavily. Yeah. What um, you, I, you know, the article in the New York Times that they did on you, were you happy with it? Yeah, man, I was t- fucking terrified. Were you? Yeah, it's just I'm not used to that level of visibility, and I was just like. It, it, it gives me like um, great respect for, you know, the journalism that we do and the what all these people who trust GQ with their life stories, with their like stories about masculinity and mental health and all these yeah. things that we cover. And obviously the collaborations that we do on photo shoots. Um, it's intense, you know, and so being on the other side of that was like um, uncomfortable for me. But, yeah, I was thrilled with it. You know, I so remember we very talked blessed. about it over the summer it's it's important that you do that um my feeling is that um you guys are obviously gq right there's this brand that means so much to so many people but young consumers want to know who it is totally they want to understand how credible is this person that's behind this publication behind the scenes is like the new cover exactly yeah 
And, you know, I think the way you carry yourself, the way you dress, it's very much in line with what GQ is. And there's a level of comfort from a consumer. And, ah, that's right. Okay. Right. That connects. Now it all makes sense. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And it's a good thing for me, too, because, like, um, you just kind of, like, if you're going to be visible on that level, you kind of, like, got to fucking get over yourself. Yeah. Like, I think for some people it could be, like some kind of ego thing. And my problem is the other way. I'm like, I don't really want to be that visible, but you, if you start digging into what that's about, you know, it's yeah. just a good thing to be like, but the thing is you're, you got to own it a little. You're visible. You're being visible and you'll be judged on your work. You're not being judged on being Will Welch. And totally. that's why celebrities can go crazy because they're actually being judged on who they are, their yeah, character, their decisions. And how they're getting coffee and Exactly. You know, Where this is gonna be all. about your work. Yeah. No, it, it was very it was very much about the work and yeah, I just feel, you know, the other thing is you can't like um I mean that's why I'm even and I'm not just saying this, I'm honored that you would have me here. It's like media covering media is it's everybody's competitive these days. Yeah. You know? So um it was just, it was cool. I, I can fully admit it was like really cool to be recognized with the New York Times saying what's happening at GQ is interesting. Like that meant a lot to me. And and it is, you know, I, I can see it. I like to think I have a pretty good like cultural A&R and I feel like I keep myself very much plugged in. Uh, I think it's in, it's crucial, especially as you get older, you can't lose touch because you can't speak on things the same way if you're out of touch. And, you know, we're not going to go out like we used to. Lord knows we can't We're definitely not. Um, but you have to stay in touch in order to, you know, be able to connect and keep understanding where things are going. And I can see it. I can see how you're moving in these parties you're throwing. You can see the buy-in that you're yeah. getting from the hip hop generation, from sports. And it does say a lot about who you are um, in terms of like stepping out as uh, as a, like a sports figurehead do you think there's like can you manage both of those because the sports world and i know just from going from music to sports is different you know and you guys can stay gq and enter the sports world which is the blessing you have but do you have to put a leader in front of that or do you want to carry both kind of on your back yeah so um we actually just internally announced that sam shuby who works at gq is going to be the gq sports director and he that's sam yeah shout out to sam sam has like deep experience he's been at gq for a very long time um and also just loves sports so uh i think he's gonna kill it and then uh i guess for me i, I was telling rachel a little bit about how we know each other and the evolution of your career as it relates to mine and you know we both started in music um you began to sort of like organically blend music and sports right yeah. which is like uh, that was the moment of like uh, every rapper wants to be a ball player and every ball yeah. player wants to be a rapper. And like Ace Kleiman was standing there in the middle, like, <laughs> you know, connecting the dots. And for me, I started out like all music all the time was all I cared about, all I thought about. Um, and then sort of moved into fashion. Um, and sports has been a part of that throughout, but I'm totally comfortable um, kind of like adding that as well. Um, but the, I don't know how you feel, but for me, the way I feel about like leadership and all, is just that the only way to do it successfully is to be yourself, yeah. you know? So I'm not going to start like going around claiming to 
be a sports fanatic that I'm not or any of that stuff. You know what I mean? I'm just going to do it as me and figure it out from there. Um, but I'm like, before all my heroes became musicians, they were all athletes. Yeah. I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia. I was born in 1981. So it's Braves, Falcons, Bulldogs, Hawks, Hawks, Dominique, Dominique. Yeah. Should put Dominique on the cover. It's possible. (laughs) See what he's got going on. Um, Tell me, editor-in-chief of GQ, this is big. Tell me where fashion is right now for men. Where is fashion? Okay, so um, when I started working at GQ in 2007, um, it was the what we now call the hashtag menswear era because all these – it was this kind of like stayed industry that was disrupted by blogs, right? Um, and all of these like young men started getting like super into tailoring, like how I'm dressed now and like educating themselves and educating each other through Tumblr and through blogs Mm -hmm. about like the history of men's fashion and what's, what's the difference between a suit, the, the tailoring traditions in London versus Milan versus Paris versus New York, the like Kennedy shit versus the, um, Rockefeller. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, and then but over time, it has just become this like incredibly chaotic, expressive, and the NBA has just been such an incredible like uh, avatar for this. For sure, where it you know even if actually if you track like Kevin the 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 style of those four guys that I named at the top, like it went from them figuring out how to get suited up. You know, like at Kevin's height, especially I'm six, six, it's not easy. There's a lot to learn. And then all of a sudden it became like more and more expressive and like transgressive and fashion forward. And that's what's happened in menswear. And then that also matches what we've been talking about culturally, like with the new masculinity where we're, we've moved out of this thing of like, you know, if you don't dress like everybody else, we're going to start like calling you names and insulting you. Mm -hmm. Right. It's more like if you're not doing something to brand yourself and be different, then you're you're missing out. And we're at the point now, and I think anything that happens with these iconic athletes has a real impact on like everyday American men. And you know better than anyone that you can't be a superstar in the NBA right now and not have style be part of your like pie chart of superstardom. Mm-hmm. Like you just have to. And I think that is kind of true for like the average guy who's like building his own personal brand, you know, Yeah. like you, like you need some swagger and we're here for that. So you think men in general are more cognizant of their fashion now than ever before? Absolutely. And ready to take risks. And it's cool to be independent and to be yourself and to find who you are and be that instead of just being a conformist. Like we all grew up growing up in Atlanta, Georgia. If, if you did something different, like you were mocked you know, mm-hmm. and it's just a very different moment. And these, the, like these young kids, the, the Gen Z and so on, they're just sort of like so expressive and so themselves. And to me, it's super inspiring. Do you think that being someone that looks ahead, do you think like the suited and booted tapered look has a, cause you look incredible. And I think Thank it's you. starting to be a kind of standing out of its own when you wear a suit now yeah and and like the tie especially is the most dead thing on earth which is why i've been putting on a tie almost every day <laughs> like um did you see that picture of the what is it now g7 i think there's the is it g7 or g8 at this point but anyway all of them were wearing jackets and like probably 500 dollars dress shirts and not one of them had on a tie yeah the other thing that i've noticed that's really funny is i'll like walk into dinner or something and people will be like oh you're all dressed up and I'm like, 
I'm the editor in chief of GQ. Yeah. Like, what'd you want? The t-shirt? Um, <laughs> but yeah, a, a suit and tie feels like, I always think it's lame when people say things are punk rock that aren't punk rock, but it just feels like, it feels like it's a, it's, it's a different statement right now, which always means it's coming back. Like, it's just a pendulum. This is how culture works. Right. And we're at the, like, we're at the, um, there can't be any more like just pure chaotic, like everybody super underdressed all the time. That inevitably means like some formality is coming back. Yeah. I completely agree. Like if, if you stand out by being sloppier and sweats at first, it's dope. If everyone is in sweats and going for that look, it's not Boring. dope anymore. Yeah. Um, all right, before I let you go, one thing, you know, clearly we talked about how you have to build and how you have to maintain the credibility of the brand, extending into sports. You have GQ hype. You have so many extensions of it. You're you yep. and having to be you and represent the brand. But also this is a tumultuous time in the world in general and you lead a company. Um, what's the climate within GQ, within Condé Nast? And how do you manage that as well and understanding the people that work for you and where they're coming from and what they may be thinking and feeling during a time like this, um, while also obviously having to run a company? So first of all, I love it. I, I love um, taking the business of GQ super seriously. Obviously, I'm the editorial leader and I have, there are business leaders that are my partners in GQ, but I really own like GQ's P&L and all of our business. And for me, the reason that that's exciting is because at this point in my career, I've made a lot of issues of a magazine and like being on a, I'm never happier than when I'm on a cover shoot like collaborating with talent and a photographer and a stylist. That is my favorite shit, but I've done it a lot. And this is my first time really running a business like this. And so for me, leadership or a career or just a life is about evolution and growth. So um, making the next issue of GQ is doesn't represent as much growth as it does to like um, be to become and kind of grow in and find my way as a business leader. The other thing that is probably more important to me than anything is team leadership. Um, and I started out like my first time leading a team for real was when I became the editor in chief of GQ style in late 2015 at a team of four. And then with GQ us, it became 85 and now globally I haven't counted, but it's a lot of people and I, it's I'm learning, yeah. you know, I have, and I have so much more to learn. Sorry guys, I'll do better. Um, but again, to go back to that thing I said earlier, like I can only do it as myself. Yeah. Right. And so, uh, I'm a person who believes in kindness. I'm a person who believes in, in heart centeredness. Um, I also love taking risks. I love, um, the opportunity to do something that nobody's expecting. And so I try to like lead a team that way too. And it's really cool to represent for my generation because especially in the fashion world, there was a lot of like, um, uh, when you got into a position of authority, you tortured people because you were tortured when you were an assistant. And like my generation doesn't play that. And we don't, that isn't allowed at GQ. And we've just been able to like, make a sea change in yeah. our business. And sometimes we work with like people of a di different generation and they like kind of come into our space and think they're going to act a certain way. And it's just not going to happen. It doesn't fly. And that to me is like so exciting. Yeah. You know? How crazy is it that that's how we came up that yeah. people really treated you like shit. Yeah. When you worked. And how cool is it that like, um, you know, this is like, 
I don't want to, I don't want to overstate it, but this is like has to do with intergenerational trauma and all this shit. And it's really powerful when you can like stop the, the cycle, stop the cycle. Like I I got treated that way and I'm not passing it on is like super powerful, super powerful. Or people thinking that like, if you're not working 24 hours, seven days a week, you're not working hard. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's been interesting to see cause we, you and I also came up in grind culture Yeah, and it's been really interesting the way that that's been challenged too. And I'm still trying to learn from that. Cause I, you know, I work way too much. That's a good point. Cause that's probably the, what the uh, balance of that is on, you know, unfortunately is that, you know, we had to grind Yeah, because I, we were, it was like someone was on our shoulder like that. I'm trying to do some element of like rewiring on that. And it's very hard. Yeah. Like I'm addicted to working yeah yeah um all right last question um i just came up with this on that the was not a humble brag by the way i'm no, no, really no. trying to undo that like no, 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 it I, wasn't like i'm and secretly all i do is work that's what you should do too <laughs> i'm addicted to yeah, the job addicted to work. um all right so this is an idea gq is just an idea it's in your head you're coming to me you want to raise money how would you explain gq as a business for your elevator pitch Wow. So GQ doesn't exist. It's just an idea. It's, All it's of this is head. an idea in your head. Yeah. So you're pitching me on the vision. It, that, before I answer that, I just want to say that's such an interesting challenge because um, the taking on the responsibility and the history of a legacy brand is so different from startup. I've like tried to bring startup energy to it, but the basic task is like it's it's just like a whole different, yeah. it's a whole, you're like, how do I modernize? Like, how do I really understand and reinterpret this pre-existing idea in a way that is going to like light people up the way a new idea does? Yeah. And it's a different challenge. Well, you're, by the way, before you answer the question as well, you're doing it. And there's a few of your peer public publications that haven't been able to do that. So I think you have brought that startup mentality into it and you've, kept the nod to the history of right. this like 65 year old business. Thank you. That was definitely the, the like intent, like stated intention. Um, now pitch me, bro. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, as you can tell, I don't do a lot, a lot of pitching. <laughs> Is this shark tank? Did, did we say yes to shark tank? Um, so shit, man. Um, I, t- I, I just came up with on the fly. So. I guess, I guess, Sorry, I have to like get revved up into pitch mode, but basically right now, maybe if if you drew a dim a Venn diagram of everything that's happening in culture, um the piece that would be at the middle is fashion. And I do believe that. Um and we are gonna start <laughs> a magazine. <laughs> a media company. <laughs> We're going to start a print magazine in 2022. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. We're going to start a media we're going to start a media company that deals with with fashion at its center and all the other elements of culture from sports to Hollywood to music, um entrepreneurship, etc. around with like the fulcrum as fashion. And if you think about the people who have been the most influential on global creative culture from like Steve jobs to a different era of Kanye West to Virgil Abloh. Um, it has been increasingly pointed towards fashion and fashion ultimately at a time when creativity is the, like, I know hedge fund, you know, hedge fund guys that want to be seen as creative right now. Right. It's like everybody wants to be seen as creative and fashion is the place where all that can come together. Um, 
And so we're going to start a media company that is really about culture broadly, but doing it all through the lens of fashion. Mm, you did it. Did I find it? Yeah, you okay, found it. Okay, it took me a second. You found it, I was bro. staring into the abyss there for a minute. I know. But, it's a scary place when you get there, but you did it. Okay, good. If there's anything, yeah. You did it. I guess. Um, no, you got me. I'm investing. Right. How much? $100 million. Perfect. I love it. Um, well, thank you, Will. My uh, pleasure, Rich. Thank you for this. having me. Of course. Let's get dinner, drinks, and do yeah. this again soon. Yeah. We'll you do it. We'll grill do it. me next time. You can ask me questions. We'll do it with no microphones a few times, and then we'll come back, and you can come to my house with microphones, and I'll, Perfect I'll grill you. Thank you so much. All right. Will Thanks Welch, for Boardroom me. Out of Office. Thanks so much for listening.